Uh, grab your Bibles, Book of Revelation. While you're turning there, I got uh, just that we're going to get personal. I got a little personal question to pose. Don't raise your hand; that would be awkward. Um, but question I want to ask is: Have you lost that love and feeling? Okay, I asked like some younger people on our staff. I was like, "Hey, when I say have you lost that love and feeling, do you know what that means?" They're like, "No, what does that mean?" They had no idea. One person was like, is that, you mean like from Top Gun? I was like, all right, I'll give you some points for that. Uh, old song, uh, Righteous Brothers, talking about like in a relationship with somebody and just kind of the sparks are gone, right? Uh, you never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. There's no tenderness in your fingertips. I'm not going to sing it. I mean, I could, but I'm not. Uh, but it's kind of talking about this relationship where just kind of the spark's gone. You know, you're still in the relationship, but it's, it's just not the same. And, and the question I want to pose to you in that is, what about when it comes to your relationship with God? Like, when it comes to your relationship with God, have you kind of lost that love and feeling? Like, you never, you never raise your hands in worship anymore. You never underline anything in your Bible anymore. You don't pray like you used to pray. Like, you remember, like, uh, or maybe think back with me, that time the gospel first clicked. Maybe you're in college and you just had this passion for the Lord. And you were on fire. And it's just like years have gone by. And just the grind of life. And it's just kind of you've lost that love and feeling when it comes to Jesus a little bit. And maybe we should be a bit more alarmed by that. Because what are the consequences if that's the case? And how do we recapture that? And how important is that for our faithful living until he returns? Um, talking about his return, there's a phrase that I want to point out that Paul says to Timothy. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 8. In verse 7, he says, like, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. Like, he's talking about his endurance. Uh, and then he says, henceforth which is a word we don't use too often. Uh, Henceforth, uh, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That day is the return of our king. And not only to me, but also to all who have what? Loved his appearing. Now that is an interesting description of a Christian. This is like who Christians are. They are people who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. Like I can't wait to see my king. Can't wait to see my savior. Like this is what it looks like to kind of live until he returns with this eager anticipation. And talked about in Hebrews is like waiting eagerly for the return of our Lord. But are you somebody who loves the appearing of the Lord or have you lost that love? and excitement, and, and just desire to see him return. Uh, warning that Jesus often gave when he told parables. He told five parables, I believe, that really focused on uh, his return. And kind of a similar theme in each one of like this warning against just kind of um, losing an anticipation or uh, not staying diligent in his return. Like, hey, don't fall asleep when the bridegroom is coming. Like, go prepare for that. Like, those kind of parables. Like, that was his warning about his return. Like, don't, don't lose heart. Don't, don't kind of just get into this grind of life because that's what happens. Like, do we just get into this grind of life and we live for what's ever in front of us and we just kind of lose this passion for the Lord's return? So how do we, how do we fight against that? How do we maintain, like, an excitement and a passion and an expectation for the return of Jesus? How do we keep that love for his appearing alive? Because, I'll go out on a limb a little bit here, but I think that's the key to Christian faithfulness. That we are people who love his appearing. So how do we capture that? Revelation chapter 19. We're going to chapter 19 and 10 verses into chapter 20. Uh, and we want to look at how we can stay passionate for our Lord. 
and how crucial that is for our faithfulness until he returns. So chapter 19, uh, I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and I want you to notice what gets repeated, all right? After this, let's stop there. We'll pick up our pace, but... uh, You're the 11 o'clock. We had nowhere to be. Game doesn't start till 2.30. Uh, the context after this is the fall of Babylon. That's what just happened, okay? Um, so it's not like literal the kingdom of Babylon. I hadn't been around for a while for these people, but to them, Rome, like the power, uh, the corrupt power in our world that kind of promotes ungodliness, that just came down. Okay, that was defeated. The fall of Babylon happened, and then uh, we get into verse nine, or chapter 19. It says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, that's kind of a thesis out front. We're going to see that salvation belongs to our God. We're going to see that glory belongs to our God. We're going to see that power belongs to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Now, I want to pause here because sometimes there's this tension of like uh, an accusation against Christians that are just all about morality and that's not the gospel. And that's true. Morality is not the gospel. The gospel is that we are sinners saved by grace. That's good news. Amen? Right? So we're not out there just trying to get moral people. We're trying to get there to get people who love Jesus. But morality is important. And what you're seeing here is the corruption of the Antichrist. You see the fruit of that in immorality. Um, But the opposite of that is Jesus followers, saints, you see their loyalty in their morality. So morality does matter, and an evidence of corruption on the earth is immorality. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brother. You're laughing at my voice crack. That's true. I, I could hear my wife laughing. At me. Sometimes you just go through changes. All right. <clears throat> it says, then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant. With you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, so what did you notice getting repeated there? This is like a big Bible study class now. We're gonna get in, what do we notice getting repeated there? Hallelujah. Yeah, I'm going to say, that's great. Hallelujah, yeah. Sometimes when people are bold, we'll get a few amens. We're yet to get a hallelujah. Maybe today we'll get a hallelujah, but don't force it, okay? Um, 
hallelujah is mentioned, I'm going to say four and a half times. Here, he's like, what do you mean half time? So four times hallelujah gets mentioned. It just means praise the Lord or praise uh, Yahweh. But in verse five, it says praise our God. So it's like, well, that's pretty close. Uh, not the same word, but the same emphasis. They're saying praise Yahweh, praise the Lord, praise our God. And then there's other calls to worship on top of that. In verse 10, it just clearly says worship God. Or down in verse seven, it says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. So there's this clear call to worship in this text. And we've told you this before, but so much of the book of Revelation is worship. Uh, and not just like devotion, but actual like music and singing and exalting and giving praise. Like if this were an album, this is like the greatest hits of worship in Revelation. Like you got the, the throne room song at the beginning. You get the great multitude song. You get the new song that only the 144,000 know. You get the song of Moses. So some of the classics, they're thrown in there. You get the song of the lamb. You get here the victory song and it's loud. It's like thunder. Like there's some passionate praise going on. Right? And what do we do when our jam comes on in the car? Right? We turn it up. We sing along. Right? That's what we do. Like, no, 10 and 2. Say, you know, follow the traffic. No, we turn that song up. We sing along with it. And if, can you imagine this book getting passed around to church to church, struggling church, church facing persecution, and throughout the reading of this book, because they're told at the beginning, right, there's a blessing to the reading of this book. So they're getting together and they're reading this book. And what do they hear? Worship. Worship. Worship, And this whole book is like a call, like join in to the worship. It's a direction or kind of directing our worship. Don't worship Babylon. Worship God. Like, don't worship the beast. Worship the king, the true king. Like don't be marked by the beast. Be marked by the lamb. And it's just kind of direct our worship. And it's this big call to worship. So here's a question. How is your worship? Like the expression of your praise. I don't mean like your, your devotion morally, but like the, the expressing of your adoration for God. Is your worship active? Like, is it, is it happening? That's your attendance, but your worship. Is your worship um, authentic? Like, is it true to your heart? Does it reflect how you feel? Is your worship um, frequent? Like, is there a frequency to it? A consistency to it? Like, how, how is your worship? Is it something you're succeeding at or failing at? My kids introduced me to uh, a whole other realm that's probably not good for me, but there's fail videos. Like, you can watch videos of just people failing. Uh, there's a channel I discovered. It's called Fail Army, where it's just 24 hours of people filming. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anyway, Right. And I thought, like, this will get old. And it doesn't. It never... <laughs> Like, I could watch people falling down for 20, like, it's funny every time. But they got like, listen, human beings fail. Like, we got a, we got a 24-hour a channel of just watching it happen all the time. But I'm telling you, our greatest failure as human beings is our failure to worship God as he deserves. Like, that, that's, that's the kind of the heart of our, our failure. Like, Romans 3.23, we've said this before. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you're like, well, of course we do. He's God. We fall short of that. But what he's saying is we fail to glorify God as, he, as we should. The, the Bible is full of worship fails. He, he, God makes paradise. and gives you a perfect partner to live in paradise with. And you disobey that God for a talking snake? Are you kidding me? Worship fail? You're rescued out of 400 years of slavery by miraculous display of God's power. Went through a Red Sea because it just parted. Your leader's on top of a mountain getting commandments from God, declaring his love and ownership of you. And like a thundering kind of 
epic glory picture, but you got a little impatient, so you made a golden calf. Worship fail. Like you go into the promised land that was given to you by your faithful God, and what do you want to do? We want to worship the gods of the other nations. Worship fail. I mean, Isaiah mocks the Israelites. He's like, you cut down a log, and here's where it gets tricky. You're trying to decide which side of the log you should burn for firewood and which side you should turn into a god. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, worship fail? God comes in flesh as Jesus Christ raises the dead, gives sight to the blind, heals the lame, and what's the reaction? It's the wrong day. Wrong day. If you would have done that yesterday, we might have been interested. But it's wrong day. Worship fail? Like, totally missing the point. Today is Palm Sunday. You know what happened on Palm Sunday? Worship fail. Like, Jesus comes riding in on, on a donkey, kind of declaring his kingship. And what do people do? They worship him. They're even worshiping Jesus. But by the end of the week, they're yelling, crucify. Because what they want of Jesus is a very specific solution. Jesus, if you could free us from the Romans, Romans then, then I'm with you. But if not, then crucify you. We just completely missed who he is and what he was about. So worship fail. There's even a worship fail in this text. John bows down to an angel. That's awkward. Like if you fully commit, like you're down on your knees, you're bowing down. And he's like, no, no, that's, don't, don't do that. Get up, right? That's weird. If I were John, I'd be like, hey, do we got to include that? Because can we just not mention that that happened, right? But he's writing. It's like, no, you're going to write it down. Like that happened. And it's in there because it says, to show us how vulnerable we are to misplaced worship. How vulnerable we are to misplaced worship. This is John. Okay, John, holier than you, John, Apostle John. And he fails in this. And you think you're not susceptible to misplaced worship? At church, we have our own worship fails. And sometimes we don't see it because it's not like we're making statues or bowing down to other things. But so easily in our life, lesser things become too important. We get more passionate about lesser things than God. We get more devoted to lesser things than God. Worship fails. We, we lose that love and feeling for our Savior. That eager anticipation of loving His appearing just kind of fades to the back and we're just trying to go day to day. Excited about whatever's in front of us. How do we guard against that happening? How do we heed his warning to stay with eager anticipation and diligent for the return of the Lord? What, how can we fight against that? Because, guys, if we mess up worship, we mess up life. We make life about things life's not about. So let's, let's see what we can learn in this text about that. I want to point out four fours. Um, we're going to kind of see some, some small words that make a big difference in here. So um, starting in verse 1. He says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for or because his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So the reason for this hallelujah, the driving passion behind their kind of response and worship is God is judge. And it's like, I don't know if we really think of that as something that stirs up worship. Looking at God as a judge. In fact, uh, one critique given to Christians a lot is like, you're too judgmental. Christians are judgmental. But listen, we're supposed to be. 
Now, you don't hear that, and that's maybe a message for another time. Uh, but now we're not the final judge beyond our pay grade, right? And we're not to just judge in our own biases and opinions, but God has given us his word to make judgments. It's wisdom for living. But on our own, we're going to mess things up. It's not so with God. It's not so with God. There is no lack of evidence. There's no deviation from the standard. There's no prejudice. There's no falsehood. There's no injustice. God is a perfect judge who gets it right all the time. All the time. His judgments are true because God keeps his word. He is true to his word. So if you remember back in chapter 6, when the saints who had been martyred were kind of crying out, how long do we got to wait until you what? Avenge our death. And he says, wait a little longer. Part of my plan or more of my people have to die, but I got you, right? And now we're here in chapter 19. He's like, okay, time's up. And they're being avenged. Like it's happening. He's true to his word uh, and his judgments are just. It means they're right all the time. And, and guys, there is something in us that longs for justice, right? Wherever we see injustice, we don't like it. We, we want to accomplish justice. We see injustice happening all around us. But God is a God of justice. And only through this God will we ever accomplish justice. Like he will bring perfect justice. And that is the cause to the hallelujah. Like, that's the reason for praise. Let's keep looking. Verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder. Okay? I want you to read this verse before you ever complain about the value of music. Okay? Crying out, Hallelujah, for or because the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The reason for this hallelujah, what's causing or stirring up worship here, is the sovereignty of God, that God reigns, that he's in control. Um, now, it could be translated, has begun to reign, and you're like, that could be confusing if you kind of take it out of context, because God is reigning. He hasn't ever stopped reigning, but it's saying, has begun to run or, or reign, because his kingdom or his reign is being realized on earth. So the Lord's Prayer, right, your kingdom come, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, that's being fulfilled. Like the kingdom of Jesus Christ is being realized on earth. He's a sovereign ruler. He's in charge. He's in control. He is king of all. And this is good news. It's good news because he is almighty. Right? That's the description. He says that uh, the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Now, another way of saying that is he is capable for this task. He is qualified to rule. He can handle it. He, he's fitting for this. L- listen, guys, this is the end of incompetent, unworthy, unqualified government. Hallelujah. This is the end of like incompetent, unworthy, unqualified government. No longer will God's world be troubled by those who can't rule it. And I don't care like what party you side, you side, like the solution our world needs isn't like this person in office or this person else or this policy. The solution that we need is King Jesus, who's the only one qualified to give perfect justice, to rule, to govern the world and the nations and the galaxies. Like he made it, he can rule it. And this is the cause to the hallelujah. Finally, our leader who is fit to lead us with perfect justice Perfect sovereignty, perfect control is here, and it's leading to their praise. Then there's another one in that same kind of section. It says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And then another call to worship. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for, or because, 
the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So there's a feast coming. Point that out. There's a marriage supper of the Lamb that's happening. Uh, and there's this wedding language that's being used here. Now, it's a little bit different than what we experience in our context. It's not a lot different, but some different, where you get engaged. Then there's a period of engagement that leads up to a wedding. And on that wedding day, you kind of make your vows, you make your commitment, you enter into your covenant. Um, but for them, there was you would be betrothed. And there would be a period of betrothal before you get to your wedding ceremony. But at your betrothal, you're communicating your vows and your commitment and your union. And your union's not complete or consummated until your wedding uh, celebration, your feast. Just like Joseph was betrothed to Mary, but when Mary was found to be with child, he sought to divorce her because there was already this kind of covenant commitment even though they haven't consummated their marriage. And we are betrothed to Christ Jesus, our king. We are the bride to him as our groom. And in this period of betrothal, we're called to be faithful to him. That's why there's this contrast between a bride and like a harlot. It's like, are you going to cheat on your king with the world? Or are you going to stay faithful to your king who's coming? And listen, good deeds matter. I mean, there's an emphasis in this text on good deeds. The bride has made herself ready. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Okay, our, our good deeds, our works matter. They honor our king. But it's not without grace. Because look what's in between there in verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. By grace, it was granted to us. The reason we can clothe ourselves with these deeds is because of the grace of God and the work he's done in us. And we live that grace out in how we live and behave and act and show honor to God. But here's what I want us to to see here. Uh, The cause for this worship is that we get God. He says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for or because the marriage of the Lamb has come. We get God. Like, that's the cause of this celebration and this cause of this worship. And we've told you this before. Salvation is not ultimately about the forgiveness of your sins. And salvation is not ultimately about you getting to live forever in heaven. Salvation is about our reconciliation back to our creator, our maker. We get God. God is the prize. And we get to enjoy him and his glory forever. Now, what have we noticed so far about these reasons for worship? They're God-centered. The the reason behind these hallelujahs and call to worship, God is a just, true judge. God is a sovereign ruler. And we get him. Like, it's all about God. In fact, this is driven home even more in verse 10. He says, Then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. don't, don't, Don't worship me. Like, get on your feet. Worship God. That's where worship needs to be directed. For... Or because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now it's like, what does he mean by that? He's saying the testimony of Jesus or about Jesus or from Jesus is the heart of the matter. It's the spirit of this whole uh, redemptive narrative that plays out. Like it's always been about Jesus. It's always pointing to Jesus. It needs to be the focus on Jesus. Like this is what it's all kind of coming to Jesus. And then he gives us this kind of glorious description or picture of Jesus. Verse 11. 
Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one seated on it, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Maybe a little bit different picture of Jesus than you're used to. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. That could be odd. Like, what do you mean by that? It's like the divinity of Jesus is so beyond us. Like, you can't fully comprehend our king. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Like, well, wait a second. The battle hasn't started yet. So whose blood is this? It's his own. Because our victory is accomplished on the cross. The name and the name and by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, This army that kind of has their own white horses following on them, this could be angels. Uh, It could be saints. It could be a mixture of angels and saints. I don't know. I would sure love to have a horse riding in on that battle. That's all I'm going to say. Wouldn't that be sweet? Like, Saddle up and let's go. I'm just saying. That would be cool. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. We'll get into like some more Old Testament references here. I think it's Psalm 2. He will tread the wine presses of the fury, the wrath of God, the Almighty. We talked about that a few weeks back. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Like this, again, this is this glorious picture we get of Jesus Christ. Now, some people look at that last verse and just be like, see, Jesus is tatted up there. Like you got a tattoo Jesus. Now, I'm just going to say, if you want to get a tattoo, go ahead and get a tattoo. Just don't use this verse for it, okay? Like, uh, it's like his name's right on his thigh. That's probably where a sword goes. So he's got like a war. It's like you're seeing this conquering Jesus. We may be reading some things back into that here. But you get this glorious picture of Jesus Christ. And then this is what happens next. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. This is crazy. To eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Do you know what's happening here? Has the battle started yet? No. He's just trash talking. Basically, what are you doing? He said, hey, birds, gather up. Tell them about to clean up and you can, you can have the scraps. That, that's what he's saying. Like this battle, hadn't, but the confidence of Jesus Christ is a bit, he's like, well, I don't see Jesus as a trash talker. John does. The Bible does, right? That's what he's doing. Like he's saying, this is going down and I'm going to win. So birds gather up. You're going to feast. And this is what happens next. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured with it, the false prophet who, is, who in the presence had done the signs which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped Im- its image. The two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Then the rest were slain by the sword that came from his mouth all of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So that prophecy came true. Now, sometimes we get this kind of distorted Hollywood image of this epic battle of good and evil. And it's just like, it's a tense fight. But what do you notice is missing in that section of scripture. 
there is no description of any fight. There is the trash talk, and then all of a sudden you're like captured and it's over. Like, where's this epic battle? There's no fair fight. It's not like, oh, it's going to like really, it's going to be an epic battle. No, it's not. Like Jesus shows up, I'm going to kill you, and then he kills you. Like, that's it. Like, it's just like you don't understand the size and power of our king. And, and listen to me, to, to the, the, the audience here, think of the original audience. How terrifying is Rome? I mean, they're Babylon. I mean, they hold the power. You can't stand up to Rome. Are you kidding me? They control the laws. They control the army. They're like, they're in power. And then he gives them this picture of like, no, it's no match for King Jesus. There's no description of a battle because he just shows up and it's over. Like, listen, listen to me. Jesus is not returning to start a fight. He's returning to end a war. And the war is going on right now. The question is, are you fighting? And what does that even mean to fight? How do we do it? Like, what is, what is this text calling us to do? Let's, let's read on. Verse 20. Now, these first 10 verses will probably get the most attention, and I'm going to give it the least, but we'll talk a little bit about it. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received the mark of the foreheads on their hands. All the things that he's calling them not to cave into. It's like, I'm seeing these people, these faithful people. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. It might be better to understand that Gog of Magog, because Gog is more referring to a person and Magog more to a place. Um, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Again, no match, no long fight here. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So there's a lot happening here. Um, Satan is bound. He's thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. Christ reigns, and then Satan is released to deceive the nations. They wage war on Christ and his saints. Unsuccessfully, short-lived, loses again, thrown into the lake of fire forever. And this is a fascinating uh, section of Scripture um, that draws a lot of attention because it maybe creates some confusion or different interpretations or perspectives on it because you got things like, what do you mean the thousand-year reign of Christ? It's really only talked about here. What does it mean to be the binding of Satan? And when is he bound and when is he released? And you try to make sense of this. I'm going to like give you a massive overview of, not massive, but really short overview, very 
hardly any detail at all, overview of three kind of the main views of this. Uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ is known as the millennium. So the three main views of that is you have premillennialist, um, which would be people who would think that the uh, return of Christ happens pre, before the millennium. Like Christ comes and sets up, and then the millennium reign happens. They usually take a very literal, sequential interpretation of, of this text and of Revelation. Most of uh, premillennialists would say that it's a literal thousand-year reign, but it doesn't have to be to be a premillennialist. Um, you have post-millennial. Uh, it's just that Christ returns after the millennial kingdom, and this is kind of the advancement of the gospel um, and the, the spreading of, of Christ's kingdom, uh, ushering in this, this millennial reign and his return. Uh, then you ha- they would also take a symbolic, more cyclical interpretation of Revelation. Um, I know some of you are checked out. Stay with me. Uh, millennial uh, is a view that's saying the millennial kingdom of Christ is right now, um, it, it was established at the cross and resurrection that Jesus is now seated on the throne. Uh, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he's reigning through the church. And despite persecution and resistance and struggle, uh, his reign and rule will finally be realized at his return. Uh, now, again, we could spend a lot of time kind of looking at different things here. There's a lot in the text. There's strengths and weaknesses even to each of you. Here's what I'll say. It doesn't really matter that much. Now, I'm not, now, it matters because it's in the Bible, and we should study the Bible and, and dig into that. But it doesn't, like, change the main point um, or underline, undermine the main point at all. So you can kind of get into it. And if you want to study it more, because we want people to be students of Scripture, uh, here's a website you can go to, veritaschurch.org slash millennialreign. Um, there's a video there. We didn't make the video. I just There's a video that I would recommend. I think he covers fairly the different views on that, and you can dive into that, okay? So if you want to write that down, you go for it. Um, but come back with me here because I don't want us to miss the main point. And I think one big critique I have of people who study Revelation is you can get so lost in dates and charts and symbols that you miss the main point. And whenever, wherever we're at in the book of Revelation, you can never miss the author's intention of why he wrote this, to make sense of what he's saying. And the point of John writing this letter was addressing a persecuted group of Christians, trying to plead with them to stay faithful despite the difficulty all around them. And what he's saying is he's reminding them, hey, guys, God wins. Like, he, he will bind Satan, he will destroy Satan, he will set up his kingdom, he will come on a white horse. Like, he's got this. And he's trying to re, re, reinforce uh, encouragement or, or courage to a group of Christians who are suffering. Because when they look at Rome, they're like, who can stand? Against? Like, what are we supposed to do? Like, we got no power against these people. It's like, I know, yeah, but Christ the King, he's got this. Like, just stay faithful. He's got, yeah, but they'll kill us. I know, but even then, he's got you. Like, he's got this, all right? So, so don't back down. Don't cave in. He's coming, and when he comes, he'll clean the floor with him. It'll be over, right? And he's trying to re-encourage faithfulness. Listen, the, the reason he's showing us the future is to encourage faithfulness in the present. The reason he's showing us the future is to encourage faithfulness in the present. But specifically in this vision, we get a very glorious picture of Jesus Christ. And, and church, as Christians, when we tend to picture Jesus Christ we tend to either think of a baby in a manger or a savior on a cross. Two very true, accurate, glorious pictures of Christ. But it's not complete. And what we need is a Revelation 19 view of Jesus Christ. He is a conquering king. And he will come and judge and bring redemption and victory. 
And not only is that accurate, it's helpful. It's helpful. It's helpful to them, and it's helpful to us. And here's what I mean by that. A big view of God stirs up worship, and worship reinforces a big view of God, which stirs up worship, which reinforces a big view of God, which stirs up worship, which reinforces a big view of God. And that is the mind cycle of faithful living. Like you have this big view of God, you worship him. You you increase the big view of God, you worship him. Like that's the mind cycle of people who are faithful to him. Opposed to the mind cycle of unfaithfulness. Not Christ, but the world gets glorified. And then the worldly things get pursued. And then they're found empty. But then it gets glorified again. (laughs) Then you pursue it. And it's found empty. But then it gets glorified again. Then you pursue it and you find empty. And you think like, if I could just get that job, then I'll be happy. And you find it empty. But if I could just get in that relationship, then I would be happy. And then you find it empty. And if I could just make this much money, then I would be happy. If I could just get this and we just chase worldly thing after worldly thing, we find it's empty and it's empty and it's empty. And it's unfaithfulness. And what John is saying is like, hey, get off that treadmill and get a load of Jesus. Like, worship Jesus. See, see Jesus because he does satisfy. He's a fountain of living water. Like, he, he will give you, quench your thirst and quench your hunger. Like, this is where it's found. And when you worship him, you see how glorious he is. You are not left wanting, which just increases your worship. And you're in this cycle of faithfulness. So John's saying, get a load of Jesus. Worship Jesus. And, and church, this is where it's practical and helpful. It's fuel for your faithfulness. It's fuel for your faithfulness. Church, listen to me. There is a connection between praising God and staying faithful to God. This is what I want you to know. There is a connection. It's not just something we do on Sundays, get together and sing. Like the expressing of praise and worship and exalting. Like it is deeply meaningful, important, and spiritual. There is a connection between praising God and staying faithful to God. Worshiping God is like the soundtrack to living for God. Worshiping God is like the soundtrack to living for God. And John wants this worship playing in the minds of the people he's calling to stay faithful. When you're up against it in Rome, when you're facing it, you seem like everyone's around, I want these songs in your head. I want these these hallelujahs in your heart. Like this is the stuff he wants in their head and he's calling them to be faithful because they are more likely to fall away from a God they are not worshiping. They are more likely to fall away from a God they are not in awe of. And church, hear me now. We are more likely to sin against a God we don't sing to. You hear me? You are more likely to sin against a God you don't sing to. You don't worship. Just like you are more likely to cheat on a spouse you don't dance with, that you don't cuddle with, and that you don't laugh with, and you don't make love to. Nobody sins out of obligation or duty. You don't wake up thinking, well, I don't want to, but I kind of have to. You sin because you believe lies. This is what's going to make you happy. This is what's going to fulfill you. This is what's going to make you matter and give you importance. And worship, it's the reinforcement of truth. No, Christ is king. I am loved. I am forgiven. He is glorious. He is the giver of joy. Think of it like this. Expressing praise protects priorities. 
Like when we express praise to God, it reinforces, no, yeah, Christ is my king. Life is not about me. It is about him. He is the source of joy. Like it, it, it protects priorities from this world kind of pulling us in all different directions. Because church, you do not drift into faithfulness. You do not drift into a deeper love and devotion with Jesus. We drift into idolatry. We drift into being passionate about silly, stupid little things more than God. That's where the current of the world takes us. You have to fight to be faithful to Jesus. You've got to fight to keep that love and feeling for our Savior. And the way, and this is what I want you to remember, the act of worship is the fight for faithfulness. Every time you raise your hands and you declare Christ as king, you are fighting for your heart to stay true and not to lose that love and feeling for for the appearing of our Savior. It's how you fight. The act of worship is the fight for faithfulness. And this is what John is trying to stir up. I believe this is his motive in writing this, that he wants them to see like that, that Jesus is worth it. He's victorious. Lean in here. But guys, if your worship is weak, like you're here, but you don't really participate. Or if your worship is weak, as in it's not that frequent, you're vulnerable. You are vulnerable to the lies of this world. The worship of God protects you from the lies of this world. And listen, our world is a mess. I mean, it is a mess. There are so many lies being told in our world. And sometimes when you watch the news or read the headlines and you look at things, you're just like, no. (laughs) Is that real? It's like people have bought into a lie. But it's a mess. Is it just me? Do you guys see that? You ever just overwhelmed? Frustrated? We're a next-generation church. We're passionate about reaching the next generation. Can you imagine trying to stay faithful to Jesus growing up in this day and age? And it's just exhausting. Like, you just get so, like, oh, you've got to be kidding. And you can feel, like, as a Christian, you can feel powerless. Like, can you imagine at their time up against Rome? What are we supposed to do? And the feeling, we're like, how do you combat the forces of darkness that are spreading lies so effectively in our world. What do we do? How do you stand up to that? Worship. Worship. You confront false worship with true worship. You don't confront it by trying to tell a generation, don't do that, that's wrong, stop it. You confront false worship by pointing them to true beauty of Jesus Christ. You show them a group of people that are satisfied in Jesus, that are excited about Jesus, that long for his appearing. You confront idolatry of sex and greed and pride and self-centeredness with the glory and power and salvation of Jesus Christ. That's how you stand up against it. Worship. Do you know what we need right now? Revival. We need revival. And you can like get excited about that. Like, yeah, we need revival. We need to stop this, and we need new policies here, and we need this, and this needs to change. No, no, no. This is not where revival's at. That may be a byproduct of revival, but that's not revival. Revival doesn't come by policy changes or political offices. Scrap that. Like, I don't want any of that talk coming from this church. That's not the heart of revival. You know what revival is? When the people of God get serious about the worship of God. 
and the holiness of God. That's the beginning of revival. And would it be true of this church that anybody that looks in on us from the outside, whether they agree with us or not, they would never say of us when it comes to our Savior that we've lost that love and feeling. That we are passionate about our King. That we long for His return. That we love His appearing. And we sing. We worship. Because it's how we fight. We fight for our hearts. We fight for our kids by showing them nothing is better than our King. Don't don't abandon your loyalty to Him for false promises. And we can sing so confidently because it's a war that's already been won. So forth, do you know when Christ was meeting with his disciples, the night he was betrayed, and he gave that illustration with the bread and the illustration with the wine, do you know what he said to them? He said, I'm, when he took the wine, he said, I'm not going to drink of this again until, Revelation 19, until the marriage supper of the Lamb, until we're together and unified. Guys, communion is an appetizer to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Would we be passionate for that day? And if we are passionate for that day, it'll show up in every day leading up to it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, wake us up. We just confess that so many of us in different ways and different times have bought into celebrating, being in love with, being more devoted to lesser things than you. But we confess, as John shows us in this text, that you are better than Babylon. In all its power and glory, you come and just crush her and show yourself supreme. Help us now in this moment just to realize you're better than food. You're better than barbecue. You're better than basketball. You're better than money. You're better than pornography or sex. You're better than recognition, achievement. You are Christ the King, glorious one. Restoke that love and feeling for our Savior. Pray this in your name. Amen.